Uh, If you've got your Bible with you, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, and and, uh, while you're turning there, uh, let me just say it is a joy and a privilege to uh, bring God's Word to you uh, this morning. Uh, Any chance we have to be up here uh, on the mountain, we love uh, any opportunity. Uh, And I'll tell you too that my only goal this morning, uh, my only intention in all of this is to remind you of the gospel. Uh, That's all we're going to do. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now that we know, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he write its eternal truths on all our hearts. My guess is a number of you have uh, a favorite book of the Bible. Uh, Maybe it's the Psalms their comfort, uh, as Calvin called it, the the anatomy of all parts of the soul. Maybe it's Romans. Uh, If you're smart, maybe it's Genesis. I just gave you mine. (laughs) Maybe you have a favorite verse in the Bible, a verse you've got maybe written on a note card on a bathroom sink or on your desk. You could probably go grab a King James Version, study to show yourself approved. That might be a good place to start. But you've got a favorite verse, something that's been encouraging to you or or comforting to you through the years or through some difficult trial or time in your life. But I wonder how many of you have a favorite word in the Bible. Have you ever thought about this? See, I think there actually is one word in all of Scripture that ought to be your favorite. I think there's actually one word in all the Bible that is in many ways, it's the, the strongest, maybe the most powerful. It's if you could put the gospel into one word, it's in this passage. Paul begins here in this passage, actually technically Paul is ending 
we read basically the closing arguments of a prosecuting attorney. Uh, he has spent the first two and a half chapters uh, making sure we all know that his audience knows, his readers know that every Jew is a sinner and every Gentile is a sinner. Now, if you're doing a Venn diagram, that's everybody. So all Jews and all Greeks, or all Jews and all Gentiles, all Jews and all non-Jews. And in fact, he says as much even in this passage. It's not a new idea. He actually quotes, perhaps your Bible sort of makes this clear to you. He's actually quoting from the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is, is clear about our sinfulness and our need for a savior. But he says, even in verse nine, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks. And then listen to the verses he quotes, mostly from the Psalms and Isaiah, none, no one, no one, all, no one, not even one. I mean, find your escape route. Find your way out. You can't. And so Paul shows us the extent of sin. That sin actually extends to every single individual human being in all the world that ever has or will be. Sin is just that pervasive. It's just that extensive that it covers everybody. And it feels a little bit, you read through the passage, it feels a little bit like the lawyer movie or maybe the detective in that room with the mirror that you can see through one way, you know. And just leveling charge after charge after charge against the accused. And it almost comes at you too hard and too fast. In many ways, that's kind of what Paul's doing. He's kind of building a, a case against us. And so part of what we see is the extent of sin, that it actually covers everybody, but then he changes his, his course of action a little bit. Did you notice? He starts talking about body parts. Notice in verses 13 to 15, their throat is an open grave, tongues uh, under their lips is, is the venom of ass, their mouth full of curses and bitterness. It's almost as if he's saying not only does sin extend to every person, but to every part of every person. He focuses on the mouth. Now, look, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I actually think it'd be kind of cool if we really did have like, okay, maybe not venom because that sounds way too dangerous. But if there was some sort of pocket of something in your mouth that, that you could sort of shoot at. Silly string might be more fun, I guess. It'd be safer at least. We don't actually have venom in our mouths that we can shoot at people. Paul's pointing our attention to our heart. It's like Matthew 15 when the Jewish leaders come to Jesus and they complain and they go, All right, look, Jesus, here's a problem. See, your disciples, they're not washing their hands before they eat. Okay, side note. You probably have heard there's a pandemic. Wash your hands. But that's physical. That's medical. That's not spiritual. And you remember Jesus' response. Well, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean because what comes out of your mouth comes from your heart. Paul is focusing here on our mouths. What comes out of our mouth 
comes from our heart, that, that motivation center of who you really are. That's what heart is in the Bible. And, and then he suddenly runs to the under, other end of your body in verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Every part of every person. Every person from head to toe has been tainted by sin. See, I think part of our problem is we have this notion that sin is sort of outside of us. It's a list of things we do or don't do. Well, as long as I don't do those things, then I'm okay. As long as I do these things, then I'm okay. And what the Bible does over and over again is remind us that sin isn't out there. It's in here. It's part of our nature. It's part of who we are. Not by creation, of course, but because of the sinful nature that we've inherited from our father, Adam. And so Paul points out that sin has affected every single individual human being and has, ex- has, has affected every part of every single human being. And yet, if you were looking for a word that reflects the power of the gospel, if you were looking for the, the, the greatest word in all the Bible, it is not the word sin. How do I know? Well, because the rest of the passage shows us that there is someone who defeats sin. There's someone who comes along and provides for us that which we don't have in and of ourselves that solves this sin problem. You notice in verses 21 to 26, Paul writes, yes, it's true that sin affects every part of every person, and yet there is this righteousness that comes from God. We have no righteousness of our own. We don't come into our relationship with God with a, a bucket full of righteousness that we can say, look, here, God, here's, here's what I can give you. We have none. And so we have to look outside of ourselves. We have to look somewhere else. And this passage says you look to God because it's this righteousness that comes to God, but it comes to us through Christ. And again, perhaps your Old Testament professors uh, would want this sort of reinforced. Notice Paul says even this righteousness. This isn't a new idea. The law and the prophets tell you about the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone is in the Old Testament. Be careful what you do with that blank piece of paper between Malachi and Matthew in your Bible. But there's a, a righteousness that comes to us from God. It's an alien. It's outside of us. It, it comes from Christ. It's not our own. It's not from the law because by the law we cannot be saved. By the law we have no righteousness of our own. Perhaps you know verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Perhaps that's been ingrained in your brain forever. Why is it that none of us knows verse 24? That's the rest of the story. Look at verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
Justification's a legal term. It's a, a declaration. It, it's not that we're made righteous. Um, you're guilty of murder. Uh, and you go to court. And there's no question, you did it. You actually killed somebody. And you go to court. And you go through the whole trial. And at the end of it all, uh, the, the, the proceedings are over. The judge says, hey, jury, have you reached a verdict? And they said, yes, we have. And he says, what is your verdict? And they say, in the matter of the state of Georgia versus so-and-so, we find the defendant not guilty. And the judge bangs his gavel on the desk and sets you free. Are you guilty? Yes. You actually committed the murder, but in the eyes of the state, in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of the judge, you are set free. You are declared not guilty. You're declared righteous in his sight. Justification is a legal term. But God doesn't just ignore our sin. He sets it on his son, Jesus Christ. This redemption comes from Christ. And you notice the focus of this passage is on our lack of righteousness. We need someone else's. If someone were to come to you and say, hey, what does Jesus do for you? My guess is your answer would be that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. You know that's not accurate. Hang on, Chaplain Lowe. It's true and it's right, but it's incomplete. He didn't just die to pay the debt that your sin deserves. He lived to earn the righteousness you don't have. And so Paul points us to a righteous redeemer. He points us to one who has earned and gained, has shown perpetual perfect obedience because we cannot. So sometimes as a, as a pastor, sometimes in church ministry, I've had the opportunity of teaching like a communicants class. You teach ch uh, children, younger children who are ready to make a, a public profession of faith in Christ. They want to become full communing members of, of your PCA church or whatever. And during the course of the class, a conversation about grace and mercy will come up. And inevitably, I will use this illustration. If a child, and of course you're talking to 10-year-olds say, 10-year-olds get this. You may not so much. Um, you ask a 10-year-old, if you disobey your parents, what do you deserve? Well, I, should, I get a spanking. I get punished. I get something. If your parents don't spank you, if your parents don't punish you, that's mercy. Now, it might be laziness, but that's a different conversation. If they give you an ice cream cone instead... That's grace. God's favor, God's love towards a guilty sinner. And so Paul points us to this righteousness that comes from outside of us, that comes from Christ, from his obedience, from his perfection, from his own earned righteousness. People will tell you you're not saved by works. That's also not true. You absolutely are saved by works. You're just not saved by your works. You're saved by Christ's. And 
And so Paul points our attention towards this righteousness that comes from Christ, from outside of us. We have Christ's righteousness. We receive it by faith and by faith alone. It comes as a gift. It's not something we can earn. And again, just as you read through, what was it, verses 10 to 13, or 10 to 12, the none and the no one and the all and the no one and the not even one, as you looked for your way out, the same is true in this part of the passage. If you look for your way in, what can, what can I bring? What can I give him? What can I do? There's no way in. Everything about verses 21 to 26 points you away from you and towards God's grace in Christ received by faith alone, which Paul will later tell us even that's a gift from God. Sin affects every part of every person. And yet in this passage, God proves his power over sin in our lives by crediting to us Christ's righteousness to save us, to redeem us. God proves his power, his strength, his authority even over sin in this passage. But if I may be so bold, even God is not that one word, that, that strongest word in the Bible, that greatest word in the Bible, that, that word that if you were going to summarize the gospel in one word, it's not even, it's not sin, it's not even God. So what is it? It's actually a word you use every day. It's a word you use in, in almost every conversation. It's a word that you will say an untold number of times over the course of the day, and you won't even notice it. You won't even recognize it. Because it's a word that links two ideas together. Have you seen the old schoolhouse rock? Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses. And, but, and or. Did you notice how verse 21 begins? But. It's a word that connects two ideas that don't belong together. It works like this. You know, I think you're a great guy. I'm sorry. I, I really, I don't mean to step on toes. Maybe too soon. I'm sorry. It always begins with the same sentence, right? You know, I think you're a great guy. And then follows like all the justification for saying, I think you're a great guy. And, and this is the list that changes. I don't know. You, you can make it up. You've, you've, you've said it. You've heard it. I don't, you love Jesus, you're a great leader, you're a lot of fun to be around, you make me laugh, I really like your friends, I met your family and they're really cool, um, I love the way you, you interact with my younger brother, I don't know, what, whatever goes in the list. It's really all a bunch of stuff to make the, the pill go down easier, right? I mean, that's really the goal. 
And the first sentence is always the same. You know, I think you're a great guy. The last sentence is always the same. But I just want to be friends. <laughs> Not even done yet. You know why that's a problem? Because everything you said should add up to, I would absolutely love to be your wife. The reality is, I think we absolutely should keep dating. Yes, we have a great relationship and it should continue. Somehow, I don't know. The conclusion you reach is, but I just want, but you need that word. So you can't say and, you can't say or, you, you, the only conjunction, junction, what's your function, option you got is but, why? Because it doesn't make sense. Scott's, that's the gospel. If everything Paul writes at the first part of our passage is true, be true, do I need this? Is that the subjunctive? Is that how this works? I need grammar people. If everything he says is true, thank you, um, then we should probably be balled up in a corner, in the fetal position, rocking back and, forth, back and forth, muttering to ourselves fear and dread because we're guilty of cosmic treason. Maybe our problem is, maybe our first problem is we think too lightly of sin. Ye who think of, uh, tell me ye who think of sin, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose its evil great here, meaning the cross of Christ, may view its nature rightly here, its guilt may estimate, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Maybe part of our problem is we just think too lightly of sin. Imagine walking, in, walking into your professor's office at the end of the semester, you turn in your cumulative final exam, it's taken you hours, you've done your best, you turn it in, you get it back, and it's got a 99 on it, and next to it, a big, fat, red F. See, that's what God demands. Right? Perfect, perpetual obedience. Now, okay, this is where the illustration falls. No, none of us turns in a 99 to God. So humor me on that part, right? That's where the illustration fails. But we're guilty of cosmic treason. And yet, there's this offer of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you can't say that without that word but at the beginning of verse 31, of 21. Because it doesn't fit the guilt that is absolutely true of us in the first half of this passage. You may have a favorite book of the Bible. You may have a favorite verse. You may have a verse written up on a note card, on your mirror, on your desk, in your, on a book, somewhere where you can see it every day and be reminded. Do you have a word 
If you were going to pick one word from all of Scripture, what would it be? I contend it ought to be that one. But what I deserve, if I got what verses 9 through 20 told me I deserved, punishment in hell for all eternity. But look to Christ. You run to him. Your faith, your trust in Christ and him alone for your salvation. And there is righteousness that God grants you that you don't have in and of yourself. This little word is the gospel. May God grant us the grace and the joy and the gratitude to respond to that promise and live our lives to bring him honor and glory. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are thankful that you do not give us what we deserve. You do not give us what our sin, our sin demands. You instead, by your grace, offer us your son, Jesus Christ. Would you so work in our hearts, in our minds, in our mouths and in our feet, that we would speak your words, that we would run to the gospel, that we would run to the cross, that it would be our great delight to delight in you. We pray all of this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.